Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. And welcome to Attack the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're back with our, I always say this on We Effed Up too, our bi-weekly sojourn into horror movies and feminism and queer representation in cinema. And today we're talking about the 4th of July. Yes. Not really, but. <laughs> I mean, in a roundabout since yeah. America is in the title of the film we're talking about, so it counts. That's true. Yeah, it does count. And also, I have some points to make about that. But today, we are talking about American Werewolf in London, the famous 1981 John Landis film, sort of out of genre for him, out of mm-hmm. genre type that he typically would have been you know, playing around in at that point. For the most part, he was making just comedies blockbuster comedies yes definitely animal house the blues brothers yeah he was heavily working with john belushi Mm -hmm. comedy was like his forte at that point and i read that in the marketing of this film even they really leaned into the whole like campy frat boy like humor yeah so when people eventually went to see american werewolf they were like what the hell are we watching Mm mm-hmm But actually, this was something that he had been wanting to make since the start of his career. He wrote the original sort of concept treatment for this in 1969 when he was like just starting out as a student PA on a film set. And his first film that he wrote, directed and starred in was called Schlock. So he definitely, you know, has had a passion for sort of horror camp cult cinema and an interest in it for a long time he just hadn't really made anything like that and certainly didn't get his fame making that yeah i mean john landis's kind of trajectory is it's sort of a tragic situation because he directed the twilight zone movie in 1983 Also, we actually covered that on an episode of We Effed Up, which is my great episode, by the way. (laughs) It was my my one of my other podcasts. It's a history podcast, so go listen to that episode because it goes into detail about that. But Mm -hmm. um, John Landis was directly, indirectly, you can argue either way, um, involved in the death of three people on the set, two of which were children. Yeah. After that, his career kind of flatlined, but then he did stuff like Coming to America and Mm -hmm. Trading Places, and those were also huge blockbuster hits. It's so weird that he, even after all of that, after, you know, his meteoric rise and then having that big tragedy, he still was making, like, huge movies, and he's still directing today. Yep. Actually, although he didn't direct this film... Did uh, story edits and executive produce the movie Clue, which is one of my oh. all-time favorite movies. and uh, Certainly your most used GIF. Oh, yes. My <laughs> most used GIF. Yes. Yeah. I can also like quote that movie front to back. It's great. I love it. Oh, it's fantastic. I did not know that he was so involved in that. Yeah. He didn't direct it and he didn't write the original treatment, but he did like story work on it. One of my favorite Tim Curry films. Yes. But I mean, they're all my favorite. Yeah. Tim Curry, Tim Curry is my favorite. I just think Period. that the casting of that film in general is just like so tight that yeah. like the whole Clue movie just works. It's like a perfectly translated stage play in a movie. Yes. That's what makes it work so well is, gosh, uh, let me dip into theater nerddom. It reminds me a lot of um, the play Noises Off, mm-hmm. like in terms of like the comedy beats and the way that the story moves. It's just great. If it's like, like Noises Off. It's like wearing your most comfortable clothes watching that movie. Because yeah. It's just so perfect. It is. Anyways, another perfect movie that we actually watched tonight is American Werewolf in London. It's true. It's we, true. We have so many things to talk about with this movie. It's got to be one of the most recognizable, well-loved. I would say it's probably the most iconic slash well-known werewolf movies of all time. And I would say that only second to Wolfman. 
Yeah. And so the interesting thing about that is, you know, we see cycles in horror films, especially with sort of, you know, our canon monsters, you know, not that everything has to be referential back to Universal, but it does kind of work that way, that we see cycles, not just with Universal creatures, though, you know, vampire movies, and like the fad of vampire movies definitely goes in cycles, like we can very easily chart when and sort of who the big vampire was at the start of any of them. We've talked at length in this podcast about the arc and cycles of zombie movies, when they ebb and flow into pop culture. I always say mummies don't get their due at all. That's kind of a running thing with me as I'm like, when is the mummy going to have its day? Maybe with a Brendan Fraser renaissance. That'd be amazing. We can only hope. Please bring back Rachel Weiss. Yes. If we bring back the mummy, please bring back her. Yes. And not the rock. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. (laughs) But um, nonetheless, you know, we see these cycles most often with things like vampires, zombies, I would say paranormal stories slash haunted house stories. Well, haunted houses are kind of their own thing. I would say paranormal slash possession films Mm -hmm. and then your more traditional slashers after the advent of the slasher. Werewolves, their cycles are shorter in terms of their length and the time between them is a lot farther apart but in 1981 was like a moment for werewolf films um you had american werewolf in london you had the howling you had wolfen like the 80s were this like little flash pan brief renaissance of werewolf films starting in 81 stephen king's silver bullet yes And then we had a little bit of a renaissance in the early 2000s. We had Dog Soldiers, which is super underground and I feel like not as well known in terms of a werewolf movie. But then you had the heavy hitter like Underworld, which brought back, you know, vampire versus lichen war type thing, which argue one way or the other about that. But that was like a total. I love that movie. I love the first Underworld movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kate Beckinsale was like, I was like, yes. Yeah. All I want to do is watch Underworld. I love the soundtrack. I love Mm -hmm. the lighting. I Mm -hmm. love the werewolf transformations. But this was the start of the obsession with werewolves in the 80s. I mean, it literally inspired probably the most well-known music video of all time. Yes. Directly inspired. Yes, by this film. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we would not have Michael Jackson's Thriller had we not first had Mm -hmm. Rick Baker's Werewolf and American Werewolf in London. And I think you're right. I feel like werewolf movies, maybe because of the high cost of production and people are very critical about werewolf transformations in film, especially now. You can't have a full latex transformation because people will bitch. You can't have a full CGI transformation because people will bitch. Mm -hmm. So it's like... What new frontier can we explore? The kind of middle ground that a lot of directors have gone to, especially in the more like collaborative werewolf films. So like Twilight Saga, things like that, where you Mm -hmm. have like werewolves alongside other creatures, paranormal beings, etc. is to just, and True Blood did this too, Mm -hmm. straight up make them wolves Mm -hmm. rather than like, you know, half human, half demon, half wolf creatures. Right. And there's criticism about that, too. Like, my partner, who is a huge werewolf fan, I mean, like, cut his teeth making movies, making his own werewolf movies in high school um, and right out of high school, you know, he kind of goes back and forth about, like, he's like, yeah, but is it, if they just turn into a wolf, is that really, like, the same magic of the Wolfman of like right. Lon Chaney Jr. It can accomplish the same thing in certain regards in terms of the character's humanity and all of that. But that movie magic of the Wolfman, like it's just not there when you just make them actual wolves. And there's a certain lack of desperation there too. Yeah. When you get to choose to, to turn into a wolf, it's not the same, you know, to be able to use that as a power or a strength is not the same as to be afflicted by something that happens to you, whether or not you like it when the moon is full. It's also easier to hide as a wolf. Yeah. Like if you're just like a timber wolf, well, you can just go out in nature and people are just like, oh, crap, there's a wolf. It's not, oh, crap, there's a bipedal hell beast chasing after me. Like it's a very different, you know, 
like passing versus not kind of a situation. Yeah, I think werewolves, at least traditionally, and I think the ones that I love the most are those that have that level of like tragic sadness to them. Yeah. Where the person, like, at least in traditional mythology, when it comes to a werewolf, you get scratched or bitten by a werewolf. Mm -hmm. And then you become afflicted by the same thing. And you cannot help but to transform when the moon is full. And when that happens, you are a raging beast. You can't stop your carnage. You don't mean to hurt people, but you can't stop yourself. And that is like the thing that is so important to me about werewolf story. Because if you look at the Twilight, you know, version of it or True Blood, it's like, oh, no, we get to transform when we want Right. And other werebeasts can do the same. You know, in True Blood, they have like werepanthers and all that. And they get, yeah, right. And they get to do it when they want as Mm -hmm. as like an option. And it's easier. I believe in True Blood, it is easier for them to change during the full moon or they're like more apt to change. If I remember correctly. Yeah. I, it's funny. I literally just started rewatching True Blood earlier this week because I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently. <laughs> but I'm in the first season, so I'm not even, right. you know, um, into werewolf territory yet. But there is something with the full moon, and I can't remember what it is. They're, like, more powerful or more right. savage or something. I remember they did all their, like... They're like pack rituals. Yes. Yeah. They're rituals and stuff. They did that during the full moon. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't ring the same way to me to have like that as an option and also to like pack up with other werewolves. The other part of being a werewolf that I feel like is kind of integral to the story of being a wolf is to be alone. Yes. And yeah. And to like sequester yourself or to not have a community of people that are experiencing that because you'll literally tear them apart. Right. So. Right. Exactly. And it seems like in this movie too, and in the later films, they, in the later film, anyways, they, they kind of do away with this whole thing, but there's, it's sort of just one werewolf at a time mm-hmm. in this one. So like, you know, David is bitten by the werewolf and then simultaneously that werewolf is killed by the villagers in this yes. town. And then David is the only one and he has to be the last one because otherwise the sickness will continue on. Yes. For whatever person he doesn't end up actually killing. But really quick, before we kind of crack in any further, I just want to mention that we have kind of only a couple of people as our main characters we have David Naughton, who plays David Kessler. He's our mm-hmm. main character. We have Jenny Agutter. She plays Alex Price, the nurse, and David's love interest. And then we have Griffin Dunn, who plays Jack Goodman, who is at the very beginning of the film and is David's best friend. That's kind of our main cast of characters. I will say, though, that I don't know if you noticed this, but Rick Mile is in this movie. Yes. Um, I thought happy. it was him. But I was like, what? No. But his hair is always weird in movies. So. Yeah. He's in like the background of so many movies where he just like pops up with one line. Right? And, yeah. So weird. Yeah. He's from Drop Dead Fred. He plays Fred. A and movie that I watched. The Young Ones. What's that? The Young Ones. Oh, I've never seen The Young Ones. Oh my gosh. You must see The Young Ones. Is it a? It's a television show. Television show. Okay. Yes. It's a British television show. Oh, British television. Yeah. It's about four roommates that live in this, like, crappy apartment. And, like, one is, like, a raging, like, just angry all the time, beat the crap out of you punk rocker. One is a hippie. Rick Miles' character is uh, Rick. He's the people's poet. Um, <laughs> it's it's great. And it was um, weird. They had, fun. like segments but then they would also have like musical guests like the damned was on and different people yeah it's that's super cool. cool yeah so i think this is probably the first ever physical werewolf transformation i've ever seen on film like oh, in okay. my life yeah yeah because i had seen the one in underworld which is good but it's mm-hmm. not a physical it's transformation yeah and so the first time i watched it i was like what is happening I also, around the same time, watched The Thing for the first time. So I was just like inundated with just these latex transformations. I'm like, what is even happening? And the 80s were insane. Do you know the connection there? No. Okay. So John Landis wanted to work with Rick Baker on this movie, but it took a while for them to like get the money together and all of this. And in the meantime, Rick Baker was hired to do the effects for The Howling. Mm -hmm. 
but he had already made this promise to Landis and had like kind of signed on to that film too. And the productions were going to be simultaneous. And so he felt bad and Landis was a friend. So he instead put his protege on the howling, Rob Bowden. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is that they ended up in competition with each other oh, for God. their werewolf effects. And it kind of ended their friendship. Oh, no. Because then Rob Bowden went on to do the effects for the thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you can tell that he definitely, they kind of were in the same school of effects oh like, yes of practical effects definitely because that that like transformation scene especially when you can see david's hands like yeah after they've already transformed and before he puts them on the floor you can totally see like in the stretching of the skin as his fingers are growing you can totally see that same sort of effect happen in the thing multiple times so you can kind of see that same relationship, like where you can see the through line of effects with uh, Rick Baker and Rob Bowden. It's the same kind of thing when you look at Tom Savini and Greg Nicotero. Like you can tell that Greg Nicotero started his career working under Savini as a protege and then went on to do his own thing. Like you can see little hallmarks of like the makeup style and the effect style from one to another. And it's the same thing with those two. Yeah. And it's chef's kiss, you know? Yeah. I hate bringing this up first thing because it's like such an amazing part of it. But there are so many other things to discuss in this movie. And I feel like that especially gets so much screen time and so much play from people when they discuss this movie. Absolutely. Is specifically that scene, which is totally worthwhile Mm -hmm. and very valid. Yeah. It's an incredibly valid thing. But I think it overshadows the message of the movie so much, which like what a terrible problem to have. You know, I say sarcastically that a scene in your movie is so iconic that it overshadows the rest of your movie. Well, it was the first movie to ever win Best Makeup in the Oscars. Like, they hadn't, they didn't have the category. They started the category in 1981 after there was a huge backlash because Elephant Man was kind of shut out of the Oscars and everyone was like, if nothing else, Elephant Man should have gotten some acknowledgement for the incredible skill of the effects makeup. And the Academy was like, well, we don't have like, uh, like, it's not costumes. So what is it? So in response to that, they made this new category for best makeup. And American Werewolf in London was the debut winner in 1981. Which is hilarious because how else can a horror movie get a freaking Academy Award? Right, exactly. It can't be just a really, really good movie. (laughs) Right. It has to also be exemplary at something else. Makeup, music. Yeah. Uh, I know, like, soundtrack is one. Yeah. Special effects, I think. Which has since been added. Right. Special effects, costuming. Yeah. So it can't win Best Picture. Right. Can't win Best Actor, Actress. Or Director. Right. It has to win one of these ancillary ones, which still a major achievement. It's still a major award. Absolutely. But come on, Academy. Yeah. Listen to your people. Jordan Yes, exactly. Because Jordan Peele won. <laughs> he did. He or, got Best Director. He yeah. just didn't get Best Picture. Yeah, which is horseshit. Which is stupid. Yeah. I did want to bring up that at the very beginning of this movie, and I, I've seen this movie, it's got to be close to 100 times oh, since yeah, I was a teenager. Same. And I just realized at the very beginning of the movie that David and Jack are literally in the back of a lamb truck. Like yeah, they're, they're in a truck with <laughs> lambs on the way to the slaughter. They're literally lambs on the way to the slaughter. And I thought I was like, I don't know if that's on purpose, but it's hilarious either way. Oh, yeah. I, I it. think it is. Because then they it. go to the slaughtered lamb, the tavern. Exactly. It's just so funny. And I just didn't even pay attention. I'm just like, oh, two little American backpackers. They're just on their way. You know, <laughs> no, I think that's hilarious. I thought that was great. Oh, yeah. But I did want to say, so we're watching this and I'm trying to think of other kind of buddy comedies or like mm-hmm. Euro trip comedies that happened prior to this one, because that has become a trope in film is dudes backpacking or trekking their way through Europe and trying to sleep with as many women as possible. Yeah. I mean, there's literally a movie called Euro trip, which is exactly that thing. American Werewolf in Paris borrows that trope. It does. But I was trying to think about movies that happened before this. And there are a few. 
You have Easy Rider, which not a comedy, but yeah, it's a buddy trip film. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, Ill-fated trip film. Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot that it could draw off of prior to this movie. Yeah, the only other thing I could think of is some of those movies from like the late 50s and early 60s, like the kind of like Rat Pack-esque like road films. Mm-hmm. Even to a certain degree, Some Like It Hot is kind of that because it's a train trip. That's fair. But it's definitely a different, obviously because of the the time it's not let's go to europe and sleep with as many women as possible it's it but it is sort of that like buddies on the road kind of thing it this is probably an evolution of that yeah and i think that the maybe not so much the werewolf part of it but the idea of like two best friends on their way across the country you know yeah i think that that's been borrowed quite a bit since then which is really cool i like that that trope has kind of persisted because there have been a lot of great movies that have come from that, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I know that like Abbott and Costello kind of did that in a sure in idea. Yeah. They weren't necessarily traveling through a place. Mm-hmm. It was more like we're here in this place and now we have to hijinks ensue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And less like a movie like this or to a certain extent hostile you know well i was gonna bring up hostile i think that you know we then saw horror taking not always you know two cis men together you know sometimes mixed gender groups but taking that idea of backpacking to someplace foreign or exotic and it turning dark and sinister hostile obviously the biggest example though uh, human centipede anyone oh yeah you know yeah. that that is that trope too yeah there are tons of horror films that kind of take that trope especially more like 2000s forward ones the ruins is another yeah. one mm-hmm. i do wonder why that was so romanticized back in like the 70s and the early 80s of like the idea of you know eschewing all material items and then going and like trekking through hostels for six months a year and then coming back like this new evolved person it was very much a rich person's thing yeah or an affluent person's thing you know kind of the same principle that like there was a time and i mean i know there are still people in this country who do this but it's fewer and fewer where it was like generally accepted and you know you can see all the wealth factors falling into place that before you went off to college or before you went on to get your master's, you took a gap year and traveled and, and found yourself. Now, that's presupposing that you're in a situation where you have, A, the money to go to college in the first place, and then B, the money to travel on top of college. Yeah. So I think it is romanticized because it is the province of the wealthy. Yeah. This movie definitely borrows from that. Like, we have to assume, like, broke college kids because they're, like, you know, backpacking and you know don't have a lot of money to stay the night at a hotel or whatever but also they got there somehow you know and that costs money so yeah yeah they got there and they had some kind of support system in place so that they could leave a job or had a job that they could take time off from things like that I mean I think Again, like talking about like the privilege factor there, like those are the things I think about when I think about like myself in college, like, could I have afforded to have done something like that? Maybe, but only because I was working full time, but I couldn't have taken the time off work. Right. You know, and also like being femme presenting people, especially during that time, like, oh, yeah, no, there would have been no way. Yeah. Like this was a privilege that was afforded to men. And That's it. Yes. I mean, especially in the early 80s, the world was a much more like especially cities like London and Mm -hmm. New York City and stuff like that. They had much higher crime rates. And and I'm not making any presuppositions about, you know, danger or whatever, but it was a much different time. We didn't have cell phones to track us, you know, to track our whereabouts, to check in with people on a day to day basis. It was like, if you're going to go backpacking, you're going to be incommunicado for weeks at a time. Yeah. And that's not safe for femme presenting people even now. Right. Exactly. So it was a different world. And I think that that's kind of indicative of the whole story of this is, you know, 
two white cis hetero men who are gallivanting across the country and not a care in the world no worries yeah just like cool well let's post up at this inn for tonight you know mm-hmm. that's not a thing that would happen now no definitely not i mean not even in rural england yeah or as it were they actually filmed this in wales but probably not in wales either yeah exactly <laughs> okay so let's talk about the horror comedy yeah because <laughs> Juliet hates horror comedies because she's no fun i'm just kidding. or do i <laughs> secrets yeah no <laughs> or do i like i didn't even think about it until you brought it up about what is a horror comedy even yeah what is a movie that is a what is a true genre example of a horror comedy yeah so let me backtrack a little bit you know i have said on this podcast many many times that I hate horror comedies. And my partner, who listens to this podcast and also, like, watches a ton, a ton, a ton of movies with me all the time, was like, no, you don't, and started citing movies that I like that he would consider horror comedies. And I started to realize, oh, yeah, what I actually hate is, like, Scary Movie and all of the movies from the 2000s that were, like, spoofing horror in, like, really, like crude like racist misogynist like gross like not funny to me kind of ways that were basically just like you know how can we be as gross as possible but have ghost face do it you know <laughs> so you didn't like the what's up trend of oh my me? god <laughs> have, no. have you forgotten about that because let, let me remind you yeah thank <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> I was in elementary school when that came out, so... Oh, that's cool. (laughs) That was, like, the thing. All of the boys said that all the time. Oh, I bet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, alongside that, so I started to think about, like, do I actually hate horror comedies, or do I hate, like, this one very specific type of horror comedy? Well, then I read this article from last fall, uh, from 2022, in Vulture. It's by Bethy Squires. And it's actually just a list, but there's an article accompanying it that introduces the list. We'll link this in the show notes. It's 25 horror comedies that are actually funny. And I'm not so concerned with the list because humor is so subjective and I agree slash disagree with many of these items. What I'm most interested in is the author's discussion at the beginning about what a horror comedy actually is. So in this article, they say that, like, you can have horror films with jokes in them. Like, Scream is a good example of that. You can have comedies that use a horror backdrop or horror elements. And they cite several, including What We Do in the Shadows and Young Frankenstein, which I feel really torn about because Young Frankenstein is, like, one of my all-time favorite movies. And I... (laughs) want to own it in the horror genre. But nonetheless, that's another discussion for another time. (laughs) But what they ultimately come down on with horror comedies is that it has to be a movie that is funny and uses comedy to tell a story, but also has horror stakes. And I thought that was so interesting. As I really started to think about it, I was like, oh, that really would be the sort of ultimate meshing of those two genres you know tell a story using comedic elements and beats but also have like real actual stakes for the characters Mm -hmm. and i feel like this movie does that yeah i agree with that i also am having a hard time wrapping my head around re-examining what i think a horror comedy is the other part is regional humor i think Yeah. Because what is funny to some is, especially culturally, like, to use two examples, I think, that are really well known that are probably easily recognizable as horror comedies. What We Do in the Shadows, which is very dry because it was filmed in New Zealand. Yeah. It's by a New Zealand director. Taika Waititi is from New Zealand. And then Shaun of the Dead, Mm -hmm. which is British and comes across very direct. There's no laugh track, no moments for laughter, but we you know, by way of being the viewers, are able to see the humor in these situations that are truly high stakes. Mm -hmm. Almost in a passive way, speaking specifically about what we do in the shadows, it's more like passive horror. Like, yeah, the stakes are there because they are vampires and they really do kill people. And, you know, their own immortality is at risk. 
but it's funny because it's presented like a documentary right and it's like that isn't even the focus it's yeah. more like these interpersonal relationships between this wily band of roommates is more the important part so yeah i'm kind of wrestling with this in my head because now i'm like okay well and now i have to re-examine everything i thought i knew about horror comedies yeah and i don't know after i do that what's going to be left if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's also subjective because even this list, like, you know, this article sets up this sort of theory of what a horror comedy is. And I personally don't think all of the items on the list completely play by the rules. And some mm-hmm. of that is that I don't think some of them are that funny. You know? okay, that's fair. I don't think they're comedy enough yeah. to be a horror comedy. But it is interesting the different levels of film in this because, you know, in the article they're saying, like, Rocky Horror would count because the stakes are very real for Brad and Janet. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which I think a lot of lists would not put Rocky Horror on there. Yeah. You know, and obviously they have Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I think that's another reason why I say I don't like horror comedies is I got... I do this thing. It's horrible. I shouldn't do it. But I judge things based on, like people talking about them too much yeah and Shaun of the dead is one of those movies like it's a perfectly fine movie but i hated it for years because i was so tired of hearing people talk about it that's unfair i realize that but here i am being a fellow virgo i fully understand (laughs) and i'm like man i just have a big chip on my shoulder about that thing and my partner will be like why though and i'm like well because it's stupid and he's like you don't know that yeah i'm like well the people who like it are stupid. So yeah, I don't even <laughs> go that far. I'm just like, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. Like That's I can't fair. possibly like engage with this because all I can hear is like other people's chatter. I'm oh, like, yeah. does that, is that like an ADHD thing? Like that I can't like focus on something if there's too much chatter around it. Yeah. And you're like, how can I have my own opinion when the yeah. the ether is so full of everybody else's opinion? When all I can hear is other people like quoting quotes. Yeah. It's sort of that thing where you want to try and go into something cold and then not have to hear about it afterwards because you're like, let me just form my own opinion about this. Exactly. Looking at you, Ari Aster. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I like to see movies opening night. Yeah. And then I really, I said this probably on one of our Ari Aster episodes, I would like to be immediately placed into a soundproof hamster ball and rolled out of the theater so that I don't have to listen to anybody else talk about a movie. Same with Star Wars. Yeah. And Skinamarink. That was that that was it. It I was our so, Skinamarink yeah. hot take. Yeah. Yes. That was exactly it. Yes. That God, is that was the dang. movie that, that <laughs> Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about like horror comedy, so American Werewolf, no matter where you place it, stakes are very, very high. And when this movie came out, it was a challenge for the studio to market it because it was too funny to be right. a horror movie. Like a straight up horror movie, mm-hmm. but it was also way too scary to be a comedy. Yeah. Because it captures the John Landis joke situation, like the back and forth between characters and the funny, you know, dialogue and stuff like that. But it places within that kind of wraparound story some extremely terrifying scenes yes. of violence and gore. And the other part is Jack. When he comes back, because, I mean, Jack only gets like three minutes of screen time before he's brutally murdered by the werewolf. And when he comes back, he looks awful. The makeup is amazing. And he continues to get worse throughout the entire film, which is just a beautiful touch and attention to detail that I love so much. But he's hysterical. Oh, yeah. The the entire time he's funny. He's cracking jokes with David. He's, you know, making light of the situation and all the while telling him like, hey, sorry, dude, you got to die. Yeah. You have to be the last werewolf. Yeah. You have to either kill yourself or be killed because you are inevitably going to spread on this sickness if you don't. Yeah. But he's also like laughing and joking and making fun. I, well, at the same time. Yeah. And that's the other thing about it being a comedy is like some of the humor is so dark, which I really like. Like I like a dark comedy for sure. But, you know, like how do you how do you mass market a comedy from the person who made Blues Brothers and, you know, all of these like beloved, like hysterically funny comedies where to me 
the funniest scene is a bunch of like people in various states of decay gleefully telling a character all of the different ways that he could kill himself. Right. You know, like, yeah, that is not your typical like yuck, yuck, Belushi's, you know, right. kind of a situation there. Yeah, it's exactly like a John Landis film and not at all like a John Landis film. And right. it's like, how do you explain that to people? Yeah. Like, hey, this is a very real, tragic, sad story of this man and his friend and, like, all of the people he hurts incidentally. Right. Through no fault of his own. While simultaneously there are some very, very, very funny moments Mm -hmm. in this movie. What is that quote that the doctor says? He says, uh, try to keep your wits about you or try not to go insane, at least until we're no longer responsible for you. Yeah. Or something like that. Hilarious line in the film. And it's after he's told David that his friend, his best friend who he's there with is dead. Right. The doctor calls him hysterical, which I would say he's just a friend in pain. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the Frank Oz who played the embassy representative comes in and he's like, get yourself together, man. And, you know, he just like completely eviscerates this dude. And I just I'm like, it's kind of funny, even though it's clear that David is very sad. It's kind of funny that they're all just very callous about this. Yes. And David's like, my friend just got torn apart. You know, what am I supposed to do? And they're just like, pull yourself together. Be yeah. a be a man about this. And like, okay. <laughs> it's funny. It's like backwards funny. Yeah. Like, it's not really funny, but it's it's funny because it's not really funny. <laughs> exactly. So, Julia, I know that you like to read articles ahead of time. I do. Um, when, when we're going to cover a movie, especially one that we haven't seen before or that we have seen before. Yes. So I want to talk about the idea of an accidental Jewish allegory, because that is the article that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you you had read one kind of similar, I think. Yes. To this movie. So it's sort of an offhand comment that is posed in the movie when David first wakes up from being in a coma for three freaking weeks after being attacked by this werewolf. Um, there's this offhand comment that postulates that David's Jewish based off the fact that he's not circumcised mm-hmm. and the nurses kind of have a chortle about it. I sat there and really had listened to it this first time and paid attention to this line, even though I've heard it a thousand times. And I'm like, what the hell does that have anything, any bearing on this movie, uh, whether or not he's Jewish, just not thinking about the rest of the film. And you had brought up the otherness of like being Jewish and how that plays into the film. And I want to hear about that. Yeah, well, the article I read was a Rolling Stone piece from 2016 by Joshua Rothkoff. The initial sort of conceit of the article is about the anniversary of the film and just how it was so transformational in terms of combining horror and comedy and having those high stakes and Mm -hmm. having like both really strong horror and really strong comedy elements. But as the article goes on, the author really starts to talk about David's Jewishness, about how he is almost exoticized as a Jewish person, especially as an American Jewish person in London. You know, how he is very other in a lot of ways in this movie, and that is one of them. And he gets into, in the article, you know, this sort of lived feeling of otherness that many American Jewish people have that then when translated into a situation where their Americanness is making them feel othered, you know, can be a very fraught and sometimes like dangerous, both mentally and physically situation. And how werewolves, as we know, can be a great allegory for someone who is othered, somebody who is isolated, somebody who is held apart from society or fetishized or exoticized by society and has to deal with that typically alone in isolation, has to control things about themselves that feel perhaps out of their own control. It's a great article. And I know that Joshua Rothkoff is not the only person to have written about this. Yeah, I actually also found something about this because 
when I started thinking about it, I'm like, okay, there is this scene where the Nazi demons bust in. David's yeah. having this terrible dream that Nazi demons bust in, kill his entire family in front of him, and then also kill him. And when I thought about that scene, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. I understand yeah. now why it's important that David is a Jewish character. John Landis was born to a Jewish family. So potentially that's why. And then I read this article. It's on uh, the British Film Institute's website. It's by John Spira. And he says he thinks that American Werewolf in London is one of the great Jewish films. And I thought, well, I must know. I yeah, must know yeah, why he might think this. Because I had not even thought about this as being a representation of a Jewish person in cinema. And to quote John Spira, I will just leave you with a brief quote here of part of this article. And we'll link these both in the yes. show notes. There's two good big reasons why this is important to him. One, I'll just paraphrase this because I didn't take the quote, is the scene where the Nazi demons bust into the house to him was allegorical to the idea that even though as a as a Jewish person in the 80s, you had westernized yourself, mm -hmm. this is an allegory of the fact that at any moment in time, your Jewishness could be the reason why all of that is snatched from you. And it's very literal in the sense where the Nazis come in and kill everybody in the house. But in his case, he's like, this is actually what happened during World War II. Yeah. The fact that we're Jewish meant that people came in and stole our entire lives from us. So there's that aspect of it. But I'll read the quote from the article. The story of a man equipped only by his wit, if not his wits, in a country that neither understands nor particularly wants him. A man who is dazed by his recent bloody and brutal ordeal, who does his very best to get along, despite being racked by the guilt and self-hatred of knowing what he is inside. I'm not arguing that director John Landis set out to make a hairy Jewish allegory. I'm just saying that there was an incidental subtext that continues to speak to and comfort me almost 30 years later. And that's why I love it. An American Werewolf in London is the film that connected me to my Jewish culture. It taught me that one doesn't need to be religious or dogmatic. It's a pun, but it's a good pun, to be Jewish. It gave cathartic release to certain primal fears. It gave me my first proper taste of that delicious New York Jewish humor, and it had werewolves in it. <laughs> so I just thought I it was amazing that. to hear that somebody could see even small parts of a film and have this sort of catharsis of saying, like, I understand this fear now. Yeah. I saw it play out in this fantastic way, and werewolves were a part of it, but it spoke to something that I have feared in my life and that my parents feared, and it lent credence to that. And even though John Landis might not have set out to make me feel camaraderie in cinema, he did do that. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that like right there is the power of cinema. But it's also moreover like the power of horror, in my opinion, like mm -hmm. to be able to articulate like a deep seated fear or anxiety about ourselves in a way that makes us feel not alone. Like that is horror at its shining best. You know, like that is what this genre is meant to do, in my opinion, is to like shine a light and, and help us like work through our anxieties as people uh, in a safe way, you know, mm -hmm. in a way that lets us be scared and feel triumphant or sad or happy or whatever or anxious in, in a safe environment, in the environment of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and another way that this film does that outside of, of the allegorical, you know, meaning to Jewish people who watch this film is also it's a genre buster in that the woman does not save the man. Right. The yes. woman's love does not yeah. uh, forgive or uh, exonerate the man. It doesn't save the man. Nor does it doom him either. Yeah. And and there's there's a part where David says that he thinks werewolves have to be killed by somebody who love who loves the werewolf and he professes his love to her earlier on in the film and then at the end he's cornered in an alleyway he's caused this incredible mayhem in piccadilly square decapitations car wrecks people getting smashed in between cars all kinds of shit 
and she confesses that she loves him too. And yet it doesn't matter yep. because the police kill him. Yep. I just love that that because that is such a trope in horror movies is that either the woman's love will save the person yeah. and they will become human again and, you know, live happily ever after, which happens at freaking American Werewolf in Paris, which I think yep. is completely undoing the legacy that London did. But oh, yeah, I yeah, digress. Yeah. yeah. But it either saves them where they turn back into themselves or it releases them and maybe they die, but they've been forgiven mm -hmm. or they've been, you know, allowed to ascend to heaven or yeah. they're, they're no longer bogged down by this legacy or whatever, which is such bullshit. Yeah. Or uh, their love for a woman leads them down the path of destruction. You know, I mean, I think Dracula. <laughs> yeah, Dracula. Or like I think about like the original 1930s King Kong. Twas beauty that killed the beast, you yeah. know. Really, David's love for Alex is kind of tangential. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's nice. It's nice for a subplot. It's nice to see him as a person who is grappling to just, like, be a person. But the stakes really have nothing to do with his love for her. Yeah. I mean, do they really even love one another? Like yeah, I don't think so. They've known each other for a couple of days. Yeah. Also, isn't that like super not ethical that she's like a nurse and she was like, hey, I was taking care of you, but come stay at my house and oops, we're going to hook up. Yeah. That feels real like against HIPAA or something. I don't know which one. Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely unethical. And also, I'm pretty sure she knew him while he was unconscious longer than she knew him while he was conscious. Yikes. Because it's definitely not three weeks. Yeah, I know. And he was passed out for three weeks. So what the hell, Alex? Yeah. That's not good. You're getting fired. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that doctor is pissed. Yeah. No, yeah. It's such a marginal part of the movie. Like, And David, like, does not consider Alex and his plans. He doesn't, nope. like, he says that he loves her, but then he's like, I need to be locked up by a police officer. And I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a faded relationship. You know, it's not meant to be. Do you think at all that their attraction had anything to do with his werewolf state? Oh, for sure. Because he's like uber virile afterwards. Yeah. You know, he's like definitely a ladies man yeah. after the fact. So, yeah. And I think that they talk about that a little bit in Paris, which like for all its faults, it does expand in some helpful ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. why the main character, and I can't remember his name in Paris, the only good part of American Werewolf in Paris is Mouth. Yeah. As a part of the soundtrack. Yeah. That's the only good part. Soundtrack's great. The soundtrack is great. The movie is... <clears throat> there are a lot of movies like that. Garbage. Yeah. Cough, cough, Queen of the Damned. Oh, with love. <laughs> I was going to say cough, cough, Wicker Park. Don't ever see that movie. It's terrible, but it's oh. got a bang in indie rock soundtrack. Is that... Is that the one with Josh Hartnett? Sure, maybe. I don't know. I saw it once and I was like, this is awful. But the soundtrack has the Postal Service doing Against oh. All Odds. It's got Johnette Napolitano covering The Scientist by Coldplay, which is the only good version of that song. I'm sorry. Dang, Julia, yeah, you're just dropping the, the yeah. bombs. Broken Social Scenes on there. Who else? Snow Patrol, The Shins, wow. Death Cab. It's like the best like 2000s indie rock soundtrack. It's a horrible movie. You know, we're going to get canceled because you just talked shit about Coldplay, right? <laughs> I stand by it. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow is going to sue us. Like what you like. I don't like them. <laughs> That's okay. In addition to the Your Truth Bomb, I don't like Radiohead, so everybody can yell at me for Ooh. that. <laughs> I know, I know. I just don't get opinion. it. I don't get it controversial opinion <laughs> speaking of original movies that are brilliant that have terribly weird sequels <laughs> our next movie <laughs> have you seen the sequel one time okay only and okay. it's been a long time ago it's its own special little guy we'll just say <laughs> uh, for next time we are going to go into the woods to uh Explore everyone's favorite found footage film, The Blair Witch Project. Yay! I'm excited. Not the first, but probably the best known, the one that really kicked off found footage as like a horror staple. It's exciting. I was there when it was all going down, the marketing campaign, seeing it in the theater. 
This was one that I watched for the first time. It had come out on tape. Oh, yeah. And my best friend's older brother, who I think you and he are the same age. Okay. He got it. And then we stole it from his room and watched it. And we were both like, why did we do this ourselves? We were so (laughs) terrified because it came out. So it came out on video probably late 99, early 2000. That would be right. Yeah. I was 10. So, oh God! Why did I do that? To why myself? did you do that? <laughs> I ruined myself. Oh! And I also totally remember. So I don't know if most of our listeners remember the TV Guide channel, but oh, yeah. my parents heavy play the TV Guide channel yeah. for whatever reason. And because they would have you know porn, there would be mm-hmm. uh, like pay per view previews. Uh, I remember more the Babe Wench project. Which was the the <laughs> Blair Witch parody porn. So yeah, I don't know why, but I remember the marketing of that so much more than I remember the Blair Witch. Project. I mean, that is something that will stay with you. I think. Yeah, it was so goofy. It was like the Blair Witch symbol, but then it had two big like round boobs underneath the arm part. <laughs> oh, so God. that was the uh, that was the thing that stood out to me most. But then obviously, I ruined my brain with Blair Witch Project. Fair, that fair. Is the, so like. Listen, go be a, a patron and listen to our Skin and Marie episode. But Blair Witch Project was like the very first time that I ever felt like visceral video oh, fear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At home, like popping something into the, the VCR mm-hmm. and then being like, I have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is like an interesting continuation. This will be an interesting continuation of today's conversation because. I think it's easy for audiences of a certain age or audiences who didn't see Blair Witch right when it came out to forget how freaking scary it was when it first came out. Totally. Because it became the subject of so many parodies and so many horror comedies like touched on it and spoofed it. So this will be a good kind of a through line from this episode to the next. So excited. Yeah. And support us on Patreon. Woo. So you can uh, hear our Skinamarink hot take, our delve, our continuing delve into the Flanniverse and all kinds of other good stuff. Yes. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.